modes of thought in Interran literature. Second year classics, Harbridge University. Okay, we're back. I hope that the incident that occurred here a few weeks ago hasn't been too traumatic for everyone. I really do. Look, I know the dean reached out to each of you and that there's counseling available, free, free counseling. So take advantage of that if you're thinking that might be of some use, okay? Even if you're not, I mean, it's free. So fuck it, why not? Uh, and I'm glad that it got cleared up so quickly, uh, sort of surprising, considering how glacial things move around here, but somehow, I guess, someone lit a fire under the administration's butt, and here we are. So let's get back to work, shall we? We've gotten a little behind, can't be helped, but here we are. <clears throat> so today, we're going to look at one of the most primary topics archaeologists have used to track human social behavior throughout history, and that is death and burial practices. I mean, this is the first go-to um, when it comes to anthropology and, and archaeology for early societies. Specifically, we want to look at Antara, how they handled the issue of death and burial, and what that says about the way they thought of the end of life. But to start, let's look at what we knew about before we discovered Antara and uh, what the commonly held timeline kind of looked like for these practices. We should start with a clearer idea of what we're looking at and what we're looking for, right? From the Earth's perspective, we're like a virus. We replicate, feed on resources, and no one individual is doing the damage. It's, it's really the species collectively, right? But that's the exact opposite of how we see life from our perspective. We think of the people that are very close to us, the very few people, right? Our family, our friends and neighbors, the occasional celebrity. And we create a lot of meaning and value in those connections and in the experience of life with and in relation to these few other individuals. And then, you know, we die. Every single one of us. It's tragic, right? So studying burial practices shows us a very personal, individuated response to the experience of life. History in general shows us the more collective effect of humans. This empire grew, that empire fell, stuff like that. But to get a better sense of how each individual experienced their life in the ancient world, burial practices, the reaction to the end of life, it's an invaluable resource. It's also one of the earliest examples of social integration we have. There are stone tools, then there were graves. Like it's the second thing that we have to show an integration of human society. Megalith, and villages sprouted up around the same time. So it seems there was some liminality, some threshold we crossed 
in terms of creating a social network sometime during the Neolithic period. So the oldest known burial site is in Israel, Mount Carmel, about 130,000 years ago. What interests me, and a lot of other people too, is that this gravesite has about 40 bodies, both Neanderthal and human. Intriguing, right? Now, we know there was a long time when Homo sapiens and Neanderthals and Homo erectus too were all walking around in the same neighborhoods, commingling to some degree, though apart from some shared fragments of DNA, we don't know exactly to what extent. But at this site, we have 40 souls of mixed backgrounds buried together. So we can definitely infer that there were social interactions at work, but we don't know what those were. In more recent history, still ancient, we have a little more context. In the Paleolithic, we have some graves and what they call grave goods, um, meaning objects that seem to be left with the dead for some purpose. But by the time we get to Egypt, that concept of grave goods has bloomed into an almost maniacal desire to be ready for the afterlife. Before we get there, though, let's look at some other burial practices. Not too long ago, there was a paper published by Maria Martinon Torres of the National Research Center on Human Evolution in Burgos, Spain. She found the tomb of a young boy in Kenya that dates to 78,000 years ago. So that'd be concurrent with Antera in its earliest days, right? But on the other side of the world. What we have here with Matoto, that's what they named the boy, Matoto, this isn't very elaborate. The body was placed in a dugout fissure in a cave, wrapped in cloth, and then covered with sediment. So, not glamorous. But if you think about it, if you think about the day that that boy died, someone took his body to that cave, dug out the nook, folded him up and put him inside, then covered him with dirt and packed it down. There's a real emotion there. Confronting death, protecting the body of a loved one, caring for the body while going through the grief and loss in the moment. I don't know, it's very touching to me. It connects me to them so far away now, so long gone. All right, so the late Upper Paleolithic, meaning now we're talking about around 11,000 BCE, saw a clustering of grave sites throughout Europe. There's a great article on this in the Royal Society website I'll, uh, I'll post the link. But during this time, we're seeing burials in caves with anywhere from a single adult to clusters of nine to 10 different humans with limited grave goods, right? Perforated shells and sometimes stone tools. Um, so that's what's going on in Europe. Let's get to some of the more high profile burial practices. I'm gonna to touch on two in particular, uh, maybe three because Otherwise, we could be studying burial rituals for the whole semester, no problem. I mean, it's a fascinating topic. 
Let's start with South America. The Inca are certainly not the oldest civilization on the continent, right? Um, but they're old enough for me to wedge them into a classics context as far as I'm concerned. So just don't wrap me out to the department, okay? Now, the reason I'm dying to talk about the Inca, see what I did there, is that uh, they kept their dead around, okay? There's extensive evidence that they started to mummify their dead probably something that they discovered naturally because of the dry climate high up in the Andes, right? And there's a lot to suggest this practice was actually passed down from a previous tribe, the Wari, who preceded the Inca and had an extensive empire throughout Cuzco for about 400 years. So in this climate, bodies could be well-preserved very easily and I guess the thinking was, so why not keep them around? What we found is that mummified relatives, grandma and grandpa, right, would be stored and then brought out to join in in ceremonies. They would, they would park the corpses in a seat of honor and then celebrate like the lunar cycle or an equinox or what have you. These were very calendar conscious people. And then when the party was over, they'd take grandma or grandpa and tuck them away again until the next big shindig. To me, that's wild. Um, but to them, this was a normal, common practice. So what does this indicate? What's the mode of thought here? <clears throat> well, I was talking about grief. And, okay, hang on. If anyone in here is a very religious person, pardon me, uh, I'm going to take a very secular viewpoint for a while, and uh, you just, you got to let it go. Um, life for early men and women was dangerous. It was full of disease and hunger and very hard work and death. People would die young, and they would die often. My sense is that in the face of this constant stream of death, these individualized instances of emotional turmoil, that a societal structure to lessen the burden of death for the living, right, for the survivors, had to develop as this necessary bomb to handle the psychological stress of living in a dangerous world that they barely understood surrounded by death and by the threat of death. To be clear, that is absolute total conjecture. So, you know, take it or leave it. Okay, I wasn't sure if I'm gonna do this, but uh, let's talk about shrunken heads. This is kind of gross, so if you're squeamish, um, sorry, but uh, damn, it's fascinating. There were certain tribes in South America, this practice still exists very, very rarely, but uh, a long time ago, we're talking about um, probably 800 BCE and before, um, there were tribes in South America, we're talking about the Northwest region of the Amazon rainforest. Um, there's this, this cluster of cultures known collectively as the Javorian peoples. Um, this includes the Shuar, the Achuar, the Huambisa, and the Aguaruna tribes. 
amongst these collectives, a ritual develops that involves removing the skin from a skull. Then they would put red seeds inside the mouth and nostrils and sew those shut. Then they'd use a wooden ball as a form and wrap the skin around the ball and rub it with various herbs that were full of tannins to preserve the skin. Then they would dry the head near hot rocks and rub it with charcoal ash. And all of this was done to prevent being attacked from a certain kind of vengeful spirit. Meaning if you killed someone in a battle or a raid, you'd shrink their head and keep it with you in case a spirit might attack you for your misdeed. It's true, it was also supposed to give a person power, the power of the original owner of the head, right? But that's actually a secondary function. According to their mythology, the spirit of a person, their soul was less powerful than these other vengeful spirits called Muisak, who, you know, might come looking for you. Okay, one more historical reference before we get into Antara, um, because, you know, of course, we have to talk about the Egyptians. Has anyone here read the Egyptian Book of the Dead? Chris did? Yeah, of course you did. So fascinating, right? Uh, we'll get there in a sec. Okay, so the Egyptians are pretty famous for their tombs, right? Uh, by which I mean the tombs of the pharaohs, the pyramids. Again, this is well-covered territory, so I don't need to go into it too deeply, I'm sure. Um, but in the interest of making it clear, what we see in Egyptian burial practices is a firm belief in an afterlife. This was a very religious society, okay? They had a strong priest class, tightly interwoven with the political structure. These beliefs were pervasive. They were shared by the entire society, as far as we can tell. Um, and they were reinforced consistently. Uh, so, according to this worldview, there's an afterlife ruled by the god Anubis, and it's uh, an underworld where the souls of the dead go. It's called Duat, and you have to get there, but it's not automatic. Hence, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And what that book outlines uh, are the things you need and the steps you need to take in order to properly arrive in the underworld and be prepared to, well, to live your best death, I guess. YOLO. Okay, we could go so deep on this that we'd be lost. Um, I'm just going to leave it there for now. There's lots of great stuff on this to read. And the point of this very quick survey is merely to say that there are fascinating relationships between individuals and cultures and death. It's a strangely unifying force through history um, because it's inevitable. And all of us deal with it one way or another how we deal with it collectively is uh, an important indication of the thinking of our society, right? Um, 
so we have these early examples with a few grave goods and some extra care taken with the bodies. Then in later cultures, this notion of grave goods and burial preparation take on a much more codified and ritualized forms. We see that in the terracotta soldiers at the tomb of Qin Shi Huangdi, the quote-unquote first emperor of China in 221 BCE. Earlier, we have the tomb of Kazanlak in Bulgaria, which dates to about the 4th century BCE, three chambers, uh, with these incredible murals painted on the walls, very beautiful. And also Naqsh-i-Rostam, um, this is a site in current Iran, which dates to about 550 BCE and uh, houses four of the rulers of the Achaemenid dynasty. This dynasty, particularly under Darius I, expanded massively. It was really one of the largest, if not the largest, empires in antiquity. And it spanned from the uh, Mideast all the way to the Indian subcontinent. You know what, hold on, okay, because I did, I'm seeing in my notes here, I did want to talk about Zoroastrianism and Zoroastrian burial practices. Uh, so before we get to Atera first, for those of you who haven't read up on Zoroastrianism, check it out. It's uh, very interesting. So it has a lot of parallels with Christian religions. Um, it's monotheistic. There's a judgment after death. There's a dualistic belief in good versus evil. And there's a notion of uh, free will. So this religion was founded or promulgated, we're not sure entirely, by a prophet. Zoroaster, around 2000 BCE, um, though it only starts being recorded around 650 BCE. And look, I don't want to overplay the way Zoroastrianism can look like the religions from the Abrahamic tradition. Uh, it was earlier, it was first, and it was separate. So if anything, it's the other way around, right? Um, Islamic and uh, Judaic and Christian traditions seem to look like Zoroastrianism, but to what extent one influenced the other, we just, it's hard to be sure. Um, anyway, yes, one God, Ahura Mazda, which translates as wise Lord, who was uncreated one of my favorite things about Zoroastrianism, the idea that there was a God who was uncreated, therefore he always existed, right? Very different than our founding God in Antara, Ikopa, right? Who was not only created, but was created by a human and who has a thousand eyes, at least one of which must remain open lest the world reset itself to zero again. Um, Okay, uh, just a quick look at the Zoroastrian laying out of the dead. One of the principal notions of Zoroastrian burial practices is that the corpse is an agent of decay, something they called druj or nasu, not evil itself, but associated with evil or bad. So cremation was an accepted practice, and burial in tombs was also practiced, uh, though the tombs were cased with limestone uh, as though to keep the decay from spreading. 
But the really interesting practice, uh, which still goes on to this day in a limited fashion, was the laying out of the dead. There is a practice of building these towers and putting the corpses of the recently deceased up on these high platforms. They would build walled towers, now sometimes made simply of wood, about 15 meters high, and leave the bodies out for vultures and other carrion birds to consume. These were called Towers of Silence. Personally, I find this fascinating because, and again, I'm trying to tie it back to the individualized moment of grief, how could it feel helpful to let the corpse of your loved one be eaten by birds and animals? That would just take a very different mindset than the one we live with today, right? Although there are slowly evolving attitudes about the body after death, mostly brought on by a sort of burgeoning awareness of our ecological impact on the planet, um, but we still have a reverence and a respect for the dearly departed that's filled with transference of the human spirit that a person was into the body that encapsulated that person once they're dead. In other words, someone's body to us is still that someone, even after they're dead. And even if we believe in souls in an afterlife, we somehow hold the two truths together in our minds when a person dies, right? One, they're gone. Their soul is in an afterlife following a prescribed religious path according to our cultural beliefs. And two, the body they left is also still that person and must be treated with respect. So basically, death and grief fucks us up so badly that we have to hold multiple beliefs at the same time in order to get through it. It's interesting, right? I wonder if we couldn't study other moments of anxiety that have appeared through history that are common to us all. Birth, war, uh, marriage to some extent, and look at those moments through the same lens. Anyway, Antera and burial practices. Just like the other rituals and cultural practices in Antera, this is pretty fucking fascinating, <laughs> okay? There are references in various carvings in both the Idiot King's Palace and at a few other sites to some sort of codex or instruction manual for death. Think of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, right? And there's other books of the dead as well. It seems that there was an Antaran manual for death. These start around the Second Empire, right? When a lot of the culture's first sociological constructs are firming up like the caste system and, and political mechanics. Unfortunately, we don't have a copy of this book or tablet or whatever it was, which is weird too, because the Antarans carved everything, seriously. They carved into every wall in the city, but no death book, which to me means there's no death building. If there was some structure they used to celebrate or incinerate the dead, they'd have carved that into the walls. They'd have carved that into the walls 100%. So 
There's something missing from Dark City, and it's something we know was there. I mean, it's inevitable. It's death. We know death was in Dark City. It's, it's coming for all of us. What we can say from the little slivers and fragments we've found is a few things. One, we've talked about the number nine and its ritualistic importance. Uh, and we've talked about the Matoka ritual, where citizens of Antera would cut off one of their ten fingers, leaving them with nine. So dying on a year that was a multiple of nine was preferable, highly preferable. Dying at 9, 18, 27, 36, or 45, etc., right, was considered the right way to die. And then it gets a little bit stranger, because apparently multiples of 9 were also used for group deaths. We don't know exactly how this worked, but it seems like large groups, sometimes very large groups, would pass under Ecopa's eyes together. Again, we don't have these bodies, we don't have anything but this is from the carvings in a couple of spots, including a temple in the northeast of the city um, and some stuff at the 88 King's Palace. Now, we know that various royalty in a ton of cultures would bring vassals and wives and children with them, not to mention animals, so very many animals. Oh, sorry, let me turn that off. Um, but yeah, human sacrifice to create souls that would accompany kings and pharaohs, there's lots of that. And as we discussed, the tomb of Qin Shi Huangdi had the thousands of terracotta soldiers to protect him, right? But as late as 1527 CE, 1527, we have the death of the Inca Huayna Capac, and it's believed that as many as 4,000 human souls were sacrificed upon his death. What if you get to the other side and they're all there and they're just pissed? <laughs> that would be bad for Huayna Capac. So, okay, we know there's something brewing in Antera about when to die, but what are their beliefs about death? You know, where do you go? Not too shockingly, in the Second Empire, the answer was, we don't know, right? Uh, Second Empire embraced the unknown in such a peculiar and wholehearted way. That, of course, they, they kind of loved the idea that this was this wall beyond which knowledge could not penetrate. And preparation for death was pointless because no one knew what happened. So it's hard to imagine, frankly, because they saw death as this removal from society rather than a crossing into paradise or purgatory or the underworld or what have you. It seems kind of sad, um, unless you're an atheist, in which case it seems kind of normal. They thought about it from the loss that society went through rather than the transition of the individual. How do we know this? Well. Okay, it's conjecture, for sure. But linguistically, it's baked into a lot of the historical writings and the records of lineage. For instance, when we translate the list of idiot kings passing in the Second Empire, earlier in the Second Empire, right? This is before there's any mention of a, a Book of the Dead 
or a codex. Um, there's a wall in the Idiot King's Palace where they list the Idiot Kings, and the phrase used for this is, the city lost Mem Ihaka, for instance, or the city lost Ra Samana. So death is seen from the perspective of the city losing a citizen, not the citizen losing a life. And this kind of collectivism is so pervasive in the Second Empire and it's just so unique and fascinating to me. Of course, later it takes a different turn, um, but we'll get to that. Another linguistic thing that's kind of uh, interesting to me is this notion of exile, meaning there's language, particularly on the walls of the temple in the southern section of Dark City, that refers to permanent exile from the city. And what they're talking about is death. So they seem, again, to view it from a collectivist standpoint. It was a leaving, not a transformation, or definitely not a step into paradise or an underworld. It was a loss, a loss for the city and a loss for the individual. Now, another thing to look at is the stables, by which I mean the, the prison that was built for the vessels at the turn from the Second Empire to the Third Empire, right? Because there are carvings in the walls in these cells to tell a slightly different story. Death is called the wandering and the peace, which, if you're stuck in a locked cage, makes sense, right? You'd start thinking about having some freedom, and maybe you'd put that on to death, start seeing it as a change for the better from your current circumstances. Another significant part of the Antaran ritual has to do with fingers, and um, it's pretty gross. This is written about in the main temple, the three-sided pyramid in central Dark City, and uh, again in the southern temple. So, okay, every citizen of Antara goes through the Matoka ritual, where they cut off the fourth finger of the left hand to become a full member of society. It seems that upon death, these fingers were returned to the corpse. Again, we don't have any burial sites to look at. This is all from carvings. This is writing about it, not the thing itself. Um, but there are references to a practice of placing a bone from a removed finger into the mouth of a recently deceased person. Quote, so they might be whole for their exile. And sucking on finger bones became a colloquial expression for dying. Which is remarkable because sucking on fingers is sort of infantile, isn't it? Something babies do. Um, so the dead are removed from the collective, made whole, and infantilized through the death ritual of dark... I'm sorry, guys. This seems to be important. I just, uh, I'm gonna make a quick call, okay? Gary, hey, uh, thanks for sending that Joseph Campbell first edition. That's very kind to me, but still, I'm in the middle of class though, so.
Um, guys, I have some bad news. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the protocol is here, but uh, apparently it's already online. So uh, one of our colleagues and, and a friend, Dev Engstrom, has passed away. Details aren't clear. Uh, yeah, he, apparently he was found in his apartment. He either choked or suffocated. We don't know. I have to call the dean. Um, yeah, class dismissed. Modes of Thought in Interran Literature. This podcast is made possible by Harbridge University, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Peeler Prize in Archaeological Literature, and the Harbridge Family Trust. With an in-kind donation and production assistance from Wolf at the Door Studios. For more information and a reading list, please visit modesofthoughtpodcast.com. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. You start with your own breathing. Match the rhythm of the breeze that carves the canopy, the birds and bugs chirping in set intervals. Feel the subtle pulse rising up from the ground beneath you. To wander is to dance with the forest. But the forest isn't just the partner. She's the music, the style. She's the rhythm. She's the set of ancient steps and movements that have been passed down from one dancer to another. She teaches you to dance the dance she invented to the music she's singing in a tonal system she thought up one night as it pleased her. You breathe, and you listen, and you wait for your place. Your first step, the call to... Fairy Folktale Podcast from T.H. Ponders, a member of the Fable and Folly Network. Listen to the show by searching for The Wanderer in Apple Podcasts or by visiting www.callofthewander.com.